This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Omniverse. Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program contains content that may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. Visit CthulhuMystery.com and head to Patreon.com slash Omniverse Media to join our community of fans and unlock further secrets. Why, hello there, beloved listeners of the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program. I'm Cap Blackard, showrunner of this fine show. And I'm Luke, the keeper of this fine show. While the release schedule for our ongoing audio adventures has been thrown into absolute chaos in these tumultuous times, we wanted to warm this feed and your hearts with some insightful content bridging 1920s history, historical fiction, and tabletop role-playing. So it's in that spirit that we're gathered here today to share something we've never done before in, in the Mystery Program feed. We've conducted an interview in the real world in the present day. We're speaking with Chris Spivey of Darker Hue Studios, the author of Harlem Unbound. It's a source book that expands the Call of Cthulhu RPG that we use to make our show. But it's a very, very special source book. Harlem Unbound explores the intricacies of 1920s New York City and Harlem and confronts racism in that time period as a part of the role-playing experience. It is obviously a tool for playing tabletop role-playing games, but it's also an incredible historical tome that as a writer and player, I absolutely love reading because this is exactly the sort of thing that I need to help get me into a character, to get me into a space, to help me experience the world through another person's life. Yeah, there's definitely a lot going on there. I mean, it's part setting, giving you the locality, you know, the physical sense of Harlem, the different cultures and groups that are living there. You get the more specific individuals, the movers and shakers of Harlem, people of interest and all of that to bring into your game. Then on top of that, you have your more gameplay oriented elements, which is, you know, just bringing in, here's how you would run a game in this setting to addressing racism in your tabletop RPG, how to keep that in mind and how your players should take that in and internalize it. And you all can experience this enjoy yourselves, come out understanding a little more. And, you know, that's one of the strongest parts of the book, I think. And then on top of that, you know, you also then get into the scenarios that he's crafted as well. Just different stories of different groups of characters, you know, just going through a standard mythos adventure in a variety of different flavors. 
it's a pretty great read from a game master perspective. And then, like you said, you know, it's just fascinating. It's kind of an introductory text on the period and the people and the different things going on at the time. If it's a person's first real introduction to the uh, Harlem Renaissance, it's a great thing. So Harlem Unbound came out in 2017, had a really successful Kickstarter, went on to win a bunch of awards, and now the second edition is out now, absolutely gorgeously expanded. And as soon as we started revisiting the Call of Cthulhu mystery program, Luke, you brought Chris to my attention, because this is, so this is a major development in the landscape that had happened after our initial series. Yeah, I really think he's got a good voice on, on the hobby in general and you know, as a creator, so he speaks to me. <laughs> Yeah, I've been wanting to talk to Chris for absolute ages now, and uh, this is a really fun discussion where we touch on his process for developing Harlem Unbound, writing historical fiction, and the ways that he incorporates the inevitable element of racism into these stories, how to be true to historical fiction, while also walking that extremely delicate balance regarding gameplay and people's feelings, personal experiences, and people of different races interacting on that personal role-play level with the Black American experience. It just kind of weaves together so many different parts. I think it's a really good source book for Call of Cthulhu or even just for a reference for the time period in general. You know, Even if you were to take just elements of this and use them in another game, and that's something that we'll uh, talk about a little bit. So here is Luke and I speaking with Chris Spivey, author of Harlem Unbound. Hey, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me, everybody. Gosh, this book, you might use it to play a game, but first and foremost, I feel like this is just such a vibrant historical text. It encompasses a staggering level of detail that's also really, really accessible and does all the work to ensure that readers can really feel empowered to live in the space of Harlem and to want to go deeper, whatever their research may involve. I think it's great for not just gamers, but like performers, anyone playing any role in that era. I feel activated to like to step into that world in a way that I think is exactly what historical fiction role playing should feel like. Um, thank you. I don't really know what to say after all that, other than uh, good night, everybody. <laughs> Can only go downhill from here. From there. Thank you. But that's a massive achievement. So I'm naturally very curious what got you to this point. Where, of course, the second edition it's being officially published by Chaosium. It had a really successful Kickstarter. It's won a bunch of awards. How did it start? How did this project materialize and become this tome of history? I guess it started with me as a kid when I was five and with a red box set of D&D and not seeing anyone that looked like me or my friends and that bothering me for pretty much all of my life. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess more specific for Harlem Unbound, um, when I was probably around 14, I discovered the mythos when I was at an estate sale and I read like I was reading The Outsider under a blanket with my flashlight and really sort of connecting with this cosmic horror and being an other and outside and moved forward by about two years when I first encountered Call of Cthulhu and started playing Call of Cthulhu and then learned about Lovecraft and his racism and I loved the time and the period, but I wanted to make something that was accessible to people that looked like me and other marginalized people so they could enjoy this thing that I enjoyed in our history that's there that people whitewash and just totally ignore. And that was like the crux of the idea that stuck with me until I just decided to make it happen. Well, what was your background in history or research? Because I mean, this looks like a massive research project. 
uh, avid reader, and I was an analyst that then became a project manager. Mm. So I have a, a skill set that means going in and doing a lot of research to then create papers that people can engage with. And I have an idea of like the level of detail necessary to make it factual, engaging, or sleep-inducing. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, it's definitely not the latter. So, good. Obviously, there must have been a lot of hurdles to create something at this scope. I'm curious what initial challenges you faced when you began this research and decided, like, I really would like to make this a book, a tangible thing that other people can interface with. Um, well, that, that, that is a vast understatement. So <laughs> <laughs> I think I started really pushing the idea around 2011 or 2012. And I had maybe parts of a first scenario. The Harlem Hellfighters Never Die was sort of sketched out. And I had Harlem Knights somewhat done. And like some of the bios and everything else. And it was like this little packet probably of about 50 pages. And I was like, go to different publishers. I'd be like, hey, I got this idea. 1920s, Call of Thulu, Harlem Renaissance. We'll talk about like the Renaissance. We'll talk about black excellence and how it was like a melting pot for everyone. And then we'll combat... Lovecraft's racism and racism in gaming. And it'll be historical. We'll have a whole bunch of facts. And people looked at me and they went, no, that won't sell. No one's interested. And that's not our brand. I think were the reoccurring things I heard. So when someone says to you, that's not our brand, and what you're giving them is literally what they already do, but opening arms to a broader audience, that's not surprising, unfortunately. <laughs> but I'm curious... Did you expect that response? Yes and no. Yeah. I, I was hoping that if I brought them something that was of a good quality and I could pitch a sell that, hey, you're talking to like a whole new audience of people. And so hoping that their innate capitalism will outweigh <laughs> their hesitancy and yeah. racism for some people. And it did not quite work like that. Yeah. Fortunately, I met A.V., who actually gave me a free invite to go to Metatopia one year. And at Metatopia, I think it was 2014 or 2015. I sort of had like a little soapbox I was standing on down in the bar, many scotches in, a crowd of about 50 people listening to me talk about Whoa. like this great book. Yes. And they were <laughs> nodding and agreeing. Could have been the alcohol or it could have been me. I like to think that it was me. <laughs> and so when I was there, that's when I actually had a chance to meet with Brennan Reese, who was someone I went to high school with, but we were never in the same circles. Uh huh. And Brennan found, I think, my name on the Metatopia list and was like, hey, are you the guy from Auburn? And I was like, yes, random internet stranger. I did go to Auburn High School. From there, we sort of developed a friendship. And he was like a musician and an artist and game designer and brilliant all around. And he was really interested in the book. So that's when I got Brennan to be sort of the designer, coupled with me as a project manager, writer, and general mastermind. And the two of us together, they're kind of what made the book happen. Yeah. It was without Brennan's knowledge of design and industry, it would have been harder for me to make the book as good as it is now. It's still been a book. It was still been good. But together, we were able to like elevate it to the next level. Yeah. I was so impressed with it. You know, I could tell you put a lot of effort into making it a, a really professional thing. But really what spoke to me was that book drips passion. It does. Yeah, this is something that you care about and want other people to care about. Like there's like a little passage you have in there about how, well, am I doing this right? And your thing is like, you've already picked this book up and you're reading it. It's all Jake from here. The, the attitude you carry into that book 
It's really inspiring. And it's nice to read a book that is both good adventures and also neat background and a passion project. And it all kind of comes together. Well, one of the main things for me was making sure that the book was engaging and accessible because I'm asking people to go on a journey with me that's uncomfortable at best that a lot of people would rather not have. And I can't expect you to help pay for gas on our long road trip <laughs> if I'm not at least providing like music and chips for you to eat while we're going. <laughs> you really have gone above and beyond to make that process easy. You know, Call of Cthulhu is so special because it represents the best known game that anchors players in the world that we know. But especially since it's based predominantly on the corner of the world that Lovecraft focus on, the scope can get very limited sometimes. And then there's the still prevailing notion that the role-playing audience is predominantly white males. Like that presumption. I'll, I'll have to disagree with that. Yeah. I think there's a presumption of that. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of other gamers of all types out there that don't get seen. Part of it's a lack of value from publishers to engage with them and try to present materials they want, which would then increase their publisher sales and increase visibility. And it's sort of a cycle that feeds itself. Yes, it really needs to to change. And the fact that Chaosium has, has you know, seen that is, it's the, the least they could do is to see it <laughs> because it's so at the <laughs> core of everything. One of the other obstacles that I knew for the book was if I had made my own system for this, it wouldn't have been grounded people into the legacy that was Cthulhu. So that's one of the reasons I went out of my way to become a licensee for Chaosium. And at the same time, I had worked for Pelgrane a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I used that relationship to use Gumshoe and the Pelgrane logo on the book because I know that buyers who have no idea who I am, I'm a random guy that's writing about racism in gaming and Harlem that's somewhat like a history book would need to see something extra. And so that's why I use both the Chaosium and Pilgrim to sort of like pull in that crowd of people to see what it is because I figured once they saw it, they could see what we're doing and I would have buy-in with people. Yeah. That's why that wasn't really important. That was one of the larger obstacles I had to overcome. Like the Pilgrim thing took maybe a week to do, but the licensee for Chaosium took about a year. Mm. Wow. The work you do in the book specifically to ease players through that uncomfortable situation of talking about race and interacting and potentially having white players play as African-American characters, that's a, a pretty big ask that most white people might be like, well, it's just, you know, I, either either they'd stumble into it foolishly or they might be like, I can't, I can't do that and I shouldn't do that. And you present them with an exceptional argument for why you should and why that's a very engaging and educational thing to do. Like your description of racism in the beginning of chapter six is so concise and potent like as to like what racism is, how it affects people of color. People should Xerox it and hand it out at difficult family dinners. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it goes back to one of the, the key conceits is that for me to be able to do this, I needed to have a concrete foundation that I'm working from so everyone can see it. They may not agree with it, but they can see that this is what I'm building from. Yeah. And if you have that, it's harder to argue with you because there's less ambiguity that people can add in. And so it was hard to find like the right work. That section took four months, I think, to, to write properly. I wrote, it in, I wrote it in two weeks and then it took uh, about three and a half months to refine, to change some of the tone, to like do all the things it's doing now. I believe that. <laughs> and that was all in the first edition. In the second edition, 
I refined it a little bit more, but I also added in a, a new box that discusses that. I've heard a lot of keepers, white keepers say, I bought the book. It's great. I will never run it and it sits on my shelf. And I, in the second edition, I actually address that and yeah. how that runs counter to what's productive for us to do as a society to move forward and increase inclusion in gaming. Do you think as the conversation about blackface and whitewashing in its various ways throughout media that's happening like at this particular moment is making it more difficult for white gamers to feel like they have a place playing this game? I mean, because like they have to first they have to open the book to get to the part that tells them why it's okay for them to do the thing. It's a difficult thing to do. And I feel like it might be getting more difficult, like at the same time as it's as the concept is becoming more accepted. For us, I, I think we put it in black and white in the book because there's a difference in we as gamers playing a, a person or something compared to someone in media that's doing it and representing that because they're likely getting paid. They're doing all these other things that would benefit and behoove a person of color who they're stealing a job from. Yeah. But us as gamers, we're sitting around a table together. We're sort of forming a community and we're sharing a tale that we do together. And the representation in that story is vital and important. And it's not infringing or harming anyone else if it's done respectfully. And if you mess up, you acknowledge it, you apologize, and you try to do better next time. Yeah. It's like the, the main crux of it. Yeah. When our series started, it was meant to be a one-off. Our fans asked us to play The Call of Cthulhu. So we were like, okay, cool, let's do it, great. And the whole point was that they wanted us, the people who they knew from other programs that we'd done, to play the game. But we didn't know how to play the game, so we brought in Luke, who was an outsider, and we didn't know him at all. I was their ringer. <laughs> <laughs> so we sat down to talk about playing the game, and it was immediately a different planning prospect because all of a sudden we were confronted with the fact that it was not Alpha Complex, it was not you know some ethereal realm, it was here and now. And with that in mind, I decided to play a black character in that first series. Like, these days we're a 50-50 hybrid of actual play and audio drama, and we cast people accordingly, but in our first series, it was just gamers sitting down to share a tale. And through that experience, I had my own kind of like half-degree version of what Harlem Unbound kind of represents in terms of experiencing that other walk of life through the world of that time period which was really educational because I hadn't anticipated it. I hadn't anticipated how the white characters would put my character in extremely difficult and vulnerable situations that I should not be in and how completely oblivious they were to that. And I think I made more than a few missteps in my performance, but I, at the same time, I think it was a highly educational experience and one that would have been further, this is back in 2015, so one that would have definitely been further strengthened by having a resource like Harlem Unbound to sort of explain even more about what black life was in that time period and that full social landscape of that. It will likely not help you, but people do that to me even today. Being put into vastly inappropriate situations that are at best uncomfortable, sometimes dangerous. It has not stopped. I, I don't doubt that. That's. <sighs> do you call them out on it when it happens? Eventually. It depends on the situation. I don't do it in the situation as I am more focused on the surroundings and that. Not pertinent to the, the current topic. That's a, a longer discussion for with, with alcohol. <laughs> Bringing it back around to kind of what you had mentioned before, uh, Cap, about your experience with the jazz musician in our first game and like him getting into bad situations from a white GM side of things. Like that's like kind of a weird place for me 
and I imagine for a lot of GMs there, like you said, Chris, people who pick up the book and then like, now I almost don't even know if I feel comfortable to run it kind of thing. It's kind of an interesting thing of it's supposed to be fun, but it's also supposed to be kind of heavy. Fun and heavy is something that Cthulhu GMs deal with a lot, but this is something a little more like tied to, you know, modern day. This is not a solved issue. Cap's character ended up, you know, dealing with an asshole police officer. Even outside of that, you know, we've run more recent games where elements of racism were kind of tied into the story itself. With places like that, I'm always hesitant to go all out. Sometimes I find myself pulling my punches and I almost wonder if I'm doing it as a service just doing that. Because like in the end, it is a pastime. So it's a weird tightrope. Hard to explain because it's like... Well, it's, a it's lot a... of it depends on your relationship <laughs> with the players. And if yeah, you're at a but... convention with a group of people you've never played before, that is an entirely different experience than being with your regular group that you play with every week. Yeah. That's also why in the book, I include three <laughs> different levels of play yeah. for you that you can choose whichever you're comfortable with, whatever your players are comfortable with. That makes it more accessible and more understanding for people. Usually whenever I run it, I run around the second tier. Mm-hmm. And if it's with my really close group, I run it with the third tier. Okay. And as our series has evolved into an audio drama, the way we, we operate is we do a normal actual play recording and then go in afterwards to expand the story as needed and bring in actors and so forth. So in the case of the series that Luke's talking about, like I know that he has had a hesitation about how things went down. I'm the one who comes back in and does all the additional writing to, to make sure that those moments pop and that everything plays right. And in situations like that, where we're taking what happened live and then expanding it to make sure that it has storytelling resonance for an an outside audience other than our gamers, that's where I would pull in a sensitivity or diversity consultant to make sure that whatever we're doing is the thing that has the greatest impact while doing the least amount of harm. Absolutely. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Looking to get out of the ads and back to the story? Fable and Folly Plus is a new way to support the creators you love. The podcast you're listening to right now and more than 60 others can be heard ad-free for as little as $4 a month by visiting fableandfolly.com slash plus. And now, the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program is offering bonus content to Fable and Folly Plus supporters, including character creation and how-to-play episodes, plus cast and crew outtakes, all still entirely ad-free. Fable and Folly Plus. Sign up today at fableandfolly.com slash plus. In addition to the tiers of intensity for gameplay, you also created the racial tension modifier, which is a fascinating and seemingly very necessary expansion of how to sort of monitor the stats of the game. It's something I haven't played with. And I was curious about the development of that and at what point you recognize the necessity of creating something like that and how it plays out in practice. That was part of the initial concept itself. Because even if you have a layer of trust with whoever you're playing with, you can still feel targeted. And what the racial tension modifier does, it it lets you add a meta layer to it so that you always know that I am still in a game. And whatever the keeper is saying to me, like these are the general actual mechanical impacts on my character. 
and it lets you remove yourself while still being engaged with it and still sensing it and understanding what's going on. Fortunately enough, I am familiar enough with Call of Cthulhu that I was able to use their current mechanics and just change them like that much to add an entire new layer of intensity and depth to the game. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, the, the notion of how difficulty scales based on the skin tones between people, I, gosh, the, it, it, everything changes. So it's really good to have that anchored into the difficulty extremes. And I've actually seen online some people say they pulled it out of their game and they're using it for all sorts of different things to help with like different groups of people and how they interact with each other. That was sort of um, a, a pat on the back that made me feel pretty good. I mean, it makes a hell of a lot of sense. Even in fantasy settings, if, oh, yeah. if people are creating I mean, those racial discrepancies, then those are still racial discrepancies that are culturally bound somehow. I actually did that with a D&D game. I'm one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I ran a D&D game kind of themed loosely on like uh, Qing Dynasty China, but it was, okay. you know, elves in the place of the Manchurians. And so then so... I have to ask you, did your players have difficulty playing elves? <laughs> Well, I, th that's the thing is that for them, there's that level of extraction. It's less real. And that's what I think it came down to. So, this so. how I know when people play Stormbringer, everyone wants to play sort of a uh, Amel Nibanean. And anyone that's read uh, Moorcock understands the, the vast issues associated with doing that. Mm -hmm. Well, coupled with the racism that's already inherent in Stormbringer, that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. But they are a race basically built a declining empire that's built on enslavement of other people. Yeah, it's interesting how that little extra level of extraction kind of puts it in a, in a whole different context, whereas Call of Cthulhu, even though it's got fantastic elements, it's just so grounded and it's such a different experience, which I think is what it comes down to. That and D&D, &D, I think, is just fundamentally, at its heart, it's such a power fantasy and you have to change D&D so much for it not to be that, that like I think it comes in with totally different uh, kind of setups. Chris, as you, you know, engaged in this massive research project, I'm curious what were some things about the Renaissance or the people within it and the figures at play there that you discovered that you were really captivated by that you hadn't known about beforehand? Well, that's a little bit harder because I've always sort of known about the Harlem Renaissance because my, my cousin was Ornel Hurston. Yeah. So I've always had like a link to it and I kept reading up on it and always like touching on different things. I found some amazing new poems that I hadn't heard of before and like little snippets of things like that. Some of the other writers, though, discovered some things about the city that I had no idea about. In the new edition, we put in this group of people that go down into the sewers. Like that is something I had no idea about that is utterly fascinating and could be like a slew of novels and of itself being a part of a, an integrated crew of people that have to go under into the sewers of Harlem to deal with what's down there. Beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> so that's so very appropriate and so very cool to uncover slices of history like that. I've been personally, when I develop characters for the game, I usually spend months on historical research because I'm, I guess, a little maybe maybe even a little bit insecure in how I'm just like I have to feel like I know what I'm saying all the time and that it's true and real and factual. My mom's a historian, so like <laughs> this. So no pressure. Yeah, I just feel like this really yeah. significant obligation to like do it right. Um, so I was just admiring the level of research and all the different things that I was unaware of, um, all the different figures who, I mean, plenty of whom I knew and then many more that I didn't. And so many dynamic histories that really do, the way that they're written so concisely in the book, like serve to inspire many of things that I looked up afterwards because I needed more and wanted to see how much more there was. 
to go back to actually to your other question, I guess, is part of it is I knew a lot of the different people, but I didn't know how they intersected when they were there. Yeah. And that is like utterly fascinating. And how many amazing power players were in the same place at the same time that sort of either helped or hindered each other. And those building dynamics are amazing. Yeah. It's, it's really just become more and more alive. And also, like, reading through the book, I didn't know that Moms Mabley was gay. I had no idea. And somehow that escaped me. And I'm so very glad for that. That's amazing. She was already an awesome figure. And now, like, so much She's more so. better. Yeah. All right. So then I have to ask you my, my vanity question. Please. Uh, what was each of your favorite scenarios from the book? First or second? For me, the Harlem Hellfighters in general, even before I knew anything about Harlem, I knew them from, like, you know, reading through World War I books and stuff. And so anything that kind of settled around them. So Harlem Hellfighters never died. That's my obvious one for me. Like the idea of these characters who've gone through all this craziness and come out of it and are back in the normal day-to-day life and then have to deal with mythos stuff. That whole arc I can enjoy. Okay. So now I, as a player, I have skimmed the scenarios because of the chance of Luke running them. <laughs> so that was a, a tactical thing on my part. But as a writer, you know, I've seen the different asides in all the historical context that suggests plot lines and so on. I forget what it's called, but I had never heard of the Dark Tower before. And I'm always captivated by anyone running literary or art salons, let alone in like such a dynamic and insane venue of talent. That whole thing is is incredible. And there was one aside, I forget what it was called, but there was like mention of some elite club that I don't know if it existed or not within the Dark Tower that might be having really interesting closed door events that could lead to mythos things. I was super intrigued by that. I will neither confirm nor deny its existence. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> also, there was mention of a number station in Harlem and... I thought that was particularly fascinating because then I was like, wait a minute, that's so early. And then looked it up and was like, oh, they showed up during World War One. Interesting. And now I'm like, is that a real thing? Chris, is that a real thing? Because <laughs> I don't know. I'm not saying a lot. But <laughs> if you haven't really looked him up either, Casper um, Holstein would also be a good person to look into. The Bolton King. But if you really like the Dark Tower in the new edition, there is an entire scenario that happens in the Dark Tower. Okay. Uh, that's the last thing I actually wrote for Harlem Unbound. <laughs> I have, at this point, a pretty expansive timeline for both the Lovecraftian world and our world, our like IRL world, and the world of the events that have taken place in our show to figure out how they all weave in and out and overlap. And as soon as I found out about the Dark Tower, I plugged in the dates of activity so that I could figure out when and how we would be visiting that space, which I'm probably going to work that into scripted content because that didn't happen already and we've recorded so far in advance. But like, oh, it's on. And, I'm, and I really want to read that and I might ask Luke to play it. <laughs> Aaliyah Walker was one of the most incredible women probably ever to have lived. Like, unbelievable. Well, geez, I only know the surface level from your book plus a couple articles that I absorbed after reading it. So, And I know there's some books on her. So that's, that's too short of a time. That's pretty high praise. I'm intrigued to dig in deeper. Obviously, this is kind of the main thing that, that you know, you're known for. Uh, that, 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 ouch. Hey, that, I, I mean, that you know, in a good... I've lived a fairly productive and, uh, and fruitful existence, helping society along as I go. I understand. But I mean, I, like, I, I want to as... trash in the park and put it in the hey, can. This is your breakout stardom, though. This, this is what made Chris Spivey a household name. 
for I guess people who like Call of Cthulhu stuff. <laughs> but uh, so, what's your favorite kinds of games to play? Is it is it uh, kind of you know mythos related investigative games, or I, I know you have a, a fondness for cyberpunk and superhero stuff too. But <laughs> I actually, how can I phrase this? Because cyberpunk is awesome, and <laughs> I like science fiction, but cyberpunk isn't my preferred sci-fi. Mm. I think that was eloquently put. What's your preferred is. sci-fi? Um, my preferred sci-fi is going to be more of a, a hard science fiction that's more space-based mm. and deals with human evolution and how we change with a mix of how technology, religion, and society sort of interface and how that changes us as we go and what we do to understand ourselves. Like that is... Mm. So mm-hmm. I would okay. say uh, Octavia Butler sort of Philip K. Dick sort of areas is like what really jump out at me. So I'm sorry, I got sidetracked by my thinking uh, about sci-fi. What was your question again? I, I well, in, in general, in terms of gaming, which is your favorite kind of genre of games to go for? Investigative and <laughs> somewhat actiony games. I had a chance to play Cthulhu Confidential one-on-one with Robin Laws before I actually wrote for it. And it's a very investigative game where you have sort of one character and you go through the entire thing. And my game with Robin, I think, lasted four and a half, five hours. And he sort of put a three-hour block to it. And after it was over, it was great. It was really intense. He said, there is no one that has ever investigated every single aspect of that scenario before. (laughs) (laughs) Achievement unlocked. Beautiful. (laughs) So I like the investigative aspect of it. But then at the same time, sometimes you just want to shoot somebody in the face. It's a healthy balance. (laughs) Gotcha. So kind of around where you might find Pulp Cthulhu. More, more oh, guilty yeah. green, where it's there we go. where there's stakes on the line if you mess up. Yeah, investigation by autopsy. Maybe. Yeah, my Wednesday night game group. That tends to be their investigative style, too. A <laughs> little bit of action, a little bit of investigation. If you can combine them together, it's like peanut butter and chocolate. <laughs> In line of other questions where you explore your preferences on things, I want to know, What do you feel are the most essential pieces of Harlem Renaissance art that folks should take in in order to connect with that world? That is, it's very loaded. Even do that? Yeah. That that no, that that is an unfair question. (laughs) Okay. That would be a blog post for my Patreon backers. (laughs) What's your Patreon, by the way? You can't half-ass that pitch. All the way. Uh, Darker Hue on Patreon. It has a couple different tiers. You may notice a trend in everything I do. How there are tiers to the thing. Um, but it, gets, it gets an insight into some different artwork currently that's going into On It West. Occasionally I may write something for it, maybe make a ranting blog post about how Watchmen was one of the greatest TV series that came out in who knows how long, or how the Doctor Who season finale was ugh, fraught with issues. So you mentioned Haunted West. It's a forthcoming project. What can you tell us about it? Anything that you want to ask, I am pretty open right now because due to real world issues such mm-hmm. that we're going through right now with everything, I am behind when I re- initially wanted to release it just because the printers are trying to catch back up on their own printing dates. Some staff had to deal with like COVID related issues. So we're in the weeds working our way through, but I am happy to talk about process, some of the system the enormous amount of research it's taking to do Haunted OS that dwarfs Harlem Unbound. That's what I like to oh, yeah. hear. <laughs> gimme, gimme. <laughs> Harlem Unbound, while it's not just about the Harlem Renaissance, it's focused on the Harlem Renaissance, but it's a book about Harlem. Yeah. 
So now we're sort of doing a book about the West. All of it. All of it. (laughs) So it's a matter of trying to convey the mythic grandness that is the West, incorporating a lot of voices that were overlooked from the West that were whitewashed and stolen by other people. Then adding in some weird West under that, then adding in a little bit of an alternate history timeline under that where Reconstruction was successful. Mm. And, oh, if only. Oh, change the world. <laughs> um, and then under that, a little bit of a world campaign. So all of those tiers and levels together into one big thing. Mwah. Chef kiss. Well, you haven't seen it yet. Right yeah, now, sure. it's, it's a chef mess. <laughs> <laughs> we went from like dying of uh, dysentery in the Oregon Trail to being a First Nations gadgeteer, the jetpack battling a temporally displaced dinosaur uh, above Deadwood (laughs) on an alien gray saucer. (laughs) Like that's the level of versatility we're trying to get for the game. That's amazing. Holy shit. Because almost every Western book I've seen, you can either play like in our world and there's no other option. Yeah. Or you can play something that's close to history and there's no other option. But I wanted something where if you bought the book, you have a complete system and you could play however you wanted to play. And much like Harlem Bound, we're going to give you the engaging history as we can with a lot of historical facts, but we're not going to tell you everything. We're going to tell you enough that hopefully you understand what we're saying and sparks your interest so that you go and research it and learn it. Like that's the impetus every time. Yeah. So it's a matter of like having them set so the game moderator for us can pull off and use all of them, one of them, some of them, and having it built so they can easily do that. Like if I only want to run a historical, direct, Old West game that has all these voices in it, but anyone can die of like dysentery more likely than they are to die of a bullet wound, you can do that with Haunted West. Nice. So is it a proprietary system? Uh, yeah, I wanted, we're building the system from the ground up, which also adds an entirely new level of complexity to it because the system itself is, do you know the word I'm about to say? It's tiered. So there, okay. there are three tiers to the system. <laughs> One that's completely narrative, one that's sort of like clear the mind that most games run at, and then there's a miniatures layer, and we have them so that you can apply them how you want to during the game. Like, for instance, if you wanted to go full on tier three and have miniatures for a combat, you could, then you could go back to just probably about 80% just narrative version of the game. And if you wanted to round off into tier two, that's more theater of the mind where you do lots of different skill checks and everything else, you could do that. Wow, that sounds amazing. It, it sounds amazing, and it sounds it, daunting. <laughs> It is super daunting. It's it's good right now, but it's not great. And I'm not going to release it until it's great. Okay, so I'm like a super novice when it comes to the, the full-blown landscape of tabletop gaming. How common is that scalability of play that you've just described? Hey, Luke, how common is that? <laughs> uh, yeah, not so much. There's some games that use elements of all three at different times, but to actually try to build the whole game around playing like that. Yeah. Uh, Chris is a masochist. <laughs> well, you either go big or you go home. <laughs> that is what we're still working on right now. And we actually, today I was doing some tweaking on some of the different system mechanics before this call actually happened. And I'm getting ready to send that over to the editor. So the editor can look at it and go, that is a great new addition. But did you also remember that X widget equals Y minus two? Mm-mm. And then I'll have to go, uh, no, I said it was uh, Y minus X. Gosh, okay. 
Well, I mean, the way that you escort players so gently but directly with Harlem Unbound uh, shows a great deal of care. So I'm super excited to see how you handle this absolutely momentous project. Thank you. In regards to Harlem Unbound, the second edition is out now in hardcover and digital formats. You can buy it from the Chaosium website, and we will have links in the episode notes. Chaosium was nice enough to publish this edition. After I won three gold innings in 2018, Chaosium tracked me down at Gen Con and asked if I had interest in doing a second edition of the book. I just won innings. I just had someone, literally after winning innings during the ceremony, come up to me and say, what have you even done to deserve those? Oh, damn. That's fucked up. That's, that's the life of a, of a black game designer. What, what upsets me is that, like, yeah, that's not surprising. I've had arguments on Facebook about, about, about Harlem Unbound. So, yeah. Shockingly, so have I. Yeah, yeah, one or two. I think we might have even ended up in a couple of those arguments <laughs> together. Okay, so that's loaded. Let's get the full story. What are these arguments about? The thing about the section where he explains kind of how racism functionally impacts people on a day-to-day basis. Yes. And how that carries into the, the game rules and, and how all of that is. You know, some people just, they see that and they, they bounce right off it and like refuse to even consider it's a possibility. It's like, and then, you know, they'll just come in and, you know, I, as a white male, understand the black experience very well. And these are not actual concerns. I'm like, are you sure about that, bro? <laughs> and uh, I've had some of those same people call me a racist because, you know, I talked about the racism in the world. So yeah. I'm a racist. Uh, if I post in certain Facebook groups, the, the trolls come out in mass, regardless of what I post about it, if it has the name Harlem Bound attached to it. And yeah. the moderators do not really moderate, would be the best way to say it. Mm. Yeah. Well, direct call to action. Spend money on Darker Hue products. Buy the second edition of Harlem Unbound and support make racists cr- mad yeah make racists <laughs> mad support a better world don't be an asshole also uh enjoy a pretty dope rpg supplement <laughs> it's really good thank you one thing we've actually had with our stuff because it's kind of on that edge of let's play and audio drama is we've had people come to us and say hey you know i've never tried uh an rpg before i've never tried call of Cthulhu before or anything like that and you guys kind of got me into that so do you, do you have anything you would want to say to people that might be new to this stuff? If they want to do a Call of Cthulhu adventure they never played before, they may <laughs> want to go and pick up the Call of Cthulhu uh, starter set that I may have had a hand in in helping mm. reshape the Call of Cthulhu scenario that made me a Call of Cthulhu player, Dead Man's Song. It's the one that slightly touches on Harlem. It was written probably, I want to say, for Call of Cthulhu 5.6 by yeah. Lynn Wills and Mark Morrison. It touched on Harlem, and it had the smallest of call-out boxes about racism. It was basically, racism is bad. <laughs> Even though it was, it tried to do something that it failed at doing, it spoke to me as a gamer and future writer that I went back, and then I made Harlem Unbound, and I got to go full circle. I got to become friends with Mark Morrison, and then I got to go and help rewrite the scenario that made me a Call of Cthulhu player, which is a starter scenario for people that have never played before. Look, I brought all that back. That is awesome. I'll be here all week. Cyclical shit. (laughs) Chris, thank you so much for hanging out with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, Thanks for making it easy. Appreciate it. If you want to run an Old West audio drama, look how I'm pitching you right now live (laughs) on air where it's hard to say no. And I have proof if you say yes and then don't do it. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh.
I'm just saying that I would happily like work with you all with some Haunted West stuff right now. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's go ahead and say absolutely. Also, I'm getting word from our producer who says, I'm in, I'm in, let me in. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I think, I think we can totally make that happen. I would love that. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Thanks for letting me guilt you into running my game for a bunch of people. <laughs> My work here is done. <laughs> no guilt whatsoever, only <laughs> preemptive excitement. Thanks, everybody. You can find Chris on Twitter at darker underscore hue. If you search for darker hue, you can find the darker hue website with links to um, where you can sign up to get details on Haunted West as it's uh, forthcoming. Of course, you can find his Patreon. We'll link to all this stuff on this episode's posting. Thank you all for listening. Uh, I know this is a little bit off the beaten path that we normally do. We hope to have an update for you soon with an announcement about Series 3. It's been a trying time, but uh, we're hard at work on this next series and what comes after. Thank you so, so much for your patience. If you like this discussion, something you may also like is an article I wrote for Consequence of Sound called The Problematic Lovecraft and How We Can Flip the Script. A century later, startling new horror blooms from this bigoted author's corpse. It's a dissection of the incredible influence that Lovecraft's fiction has had over the media we consume and how expansion of his myopic viewpoints is mutating in glorious ways thanks to creators like Chris or the team behind the recently debuted TV series Lovecraft Country, just to name a couple. Working with Lovecraft's writing and having been inspired by it throughout my life and being a queer person making this show, I've got a lot of complicated feelings, so I'm really glad to get some of those feelings out there. And... I'm really encouraged by this bubbling zeitgeist that's expanding the horror genre and its themes with inclusive narratives that evolve past Lovecraft's bigotry. I'm very excited to keep telling stories that do exactly that. If you haven't checked it out yet, check out Harlem Queen, the audio drama we posted the first episode in our feed just a short while ago. It is an incredible period piece set during the Harlem Renaissance, focusing on Stephanie St. Clair, the numbers queen of Harlem. Queenie's got business. <laughs> Queenie does got business. <laughs> and in our off-season, our expanded off-season, which has gone wildly off-schedule thanks to global pandemics and such, we really wanted to be sure to put something in the feed, especially content focusing on Black voices in both audio drama and tabletop role-playing. Creating content that fully encompasses all voices from history is something that is so important to us. Now, as for Mystery Program... Like I said, we're hard at work on Series 3 and beyond, but if you would like insider info, well, okay, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash omniversemedia. We keep our supporters up to date on the regular in regards to what's going on with the show, and something really cool that we should mention is that if you haven't checked it out, we have a exclusive Patreon series over there called Cthulhu Cthomentary, where we go through this series episode by episode and uh, discuss all the intricacies and pieces of history and weird little like nuanced details that are baked into the show, as well as the behind-the-scenes role-playing experience, expanding on stuff that we missed in the game. In short, it's how the sausage is made, and then probably like a 15-minute digression on how the uh, sausage's jingle got made. <laughs> I love sausages. Put them in my mouth. Ding! <laughs> yeah. In all honesty, I think some of those advertising segment talks are some of the most entertaining parts of those. I, I really liked uh, going over all those again. 
it's really validating for me to be like, this lasted 30 seconds, but it took several hours for me to even write the damn thing. Here's all the research I put into it. Yeah, here's this insane rabbit hole I went down looking into uh, Jell-O songs. Yeah, please enjoy the history of feminine hygiene products in a nutshell. All that and more is in Cthulhu Cthomentary, and we have just wrapped all eight episodes of Series 1, The Black Birth, and also have a two-part special exploring the entire score with Ryan and Mike McQuinn, Luke and I's review of the recent film adaptation of The Color Out of Space, and an episode devoted to the extremely strange process of putting the show together in the first place, the prehistory of the series. And I've got something new to share. So... Patrons get access to Cthulhu Cthomentary at the initiate level. Well, at that same level, we're starting something new. During the pandemic, all us folks at Omniverse have been playing a lot of tabletop together. And we've been recording it. So, debuting very soon is a limited series called Kate Was Here. It's an experimental RPG narrative project. A two-person duet between myself and GM Doug Banks of Ghostbusters Resurrection and who played Hank Jr. in Series 1 of Mystery Program. Now, I can't tell you too much about the game because the mystery is a very important part of it. But I can tell you it is legitimately the most intense role-playing experience of my life. Like, I am living this game. It's crazy. (laughs) In it, I play... Uh, an edgy high school journalist with a knack for putting her nose where it doesn't belong. Sinister things are going down in my hometown, like gang warfare, tech companies with private armies, rumors of secret surveillance testing, you know, lighthearted stuff. Um, But I intend to get to the bottom of it, and things absolutely don't go where you'd expect. So that's Kate was here. Uh, In brief, as much as I can say, it's just one of the new Patreon-exclusive actual play series. If you'd like to live through this experience with me, Please consider joining up on Patreon. Your support means the world to us and is invaluable in helping us make new mystery program and other content. So head on over to patreon.com slash omniverse media. To the end of other shows you should check out. I mentioned this at the end of the Harlem Queen episode, but it bears repeating. If you're down for more audio fiction recommendations, Emily Vanderwerf, the co-creator of Arden, assembled a really great list of audio fiction from Black authors. You can find that link in this episode's notes. If you're out there protesting, stay safe. If you're not out there protesting, please contribute to Black-owned businesses. And if you're looking for a community of weird nerds just like you who are dealing with these absolutely strange times, then uh, you should head over to omniverse.media slash discord and hang out with us on our discord server where we have lots of insightful conversations about life the universe and the call of cthulhu mystery program yeah come on in we're gonna get real weird with it inevitably (laughs) omniverse the fable and folly network where fiction producers flourish Welcome to Beyond the Dark. Sub-level 19 was nothing like the other floors at Machinko. There were no alabaster workbenches, no spotless white carpets. Here, it was dank, dark, and that noise. A humming, throbbing sound like a sickly heartbeat hiding behind the whir of a great machine. A large metal cage loomed out of the darkness, backlit by an iridescent blue monitor 
on which a cursor blinked idly. A metal panel slid out of an aperture in the cage near the monitor, and suddenly the cursor came to life. It read, Insert hand here. Beyond the Dark, a sci-fi anthology by Mark R. Healy, creator of The Strata. Find it at beyondthedarkpodcast.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts.